For the past few months, we have been talking a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and we are going to, of course, continue to be exploring in our church how to make that teaching more practical, how for us to be able to uh, learn what our spiritual gifts are and how to help us engage more fully in the work of the church and how to help us more fully rely on the Spirit who's given to us, who's given gifts, and who has indeed given us fruit and produces fruit in our lives. We certainly aren't leaving the Holy Spirit behind, and yet we are. Uh, we did feel like it was time to move on to a new topic, to move back to an exp- expository series in the Bible of preaching through a biblical book, and we landed on the Gospel of Mark. So uh, we're looking forward to moving somewhat slowly through the book, encountering again this story about Jesus that Mark is presenting to us. So that's where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, anytime that we start a new book of the Bible, I think it's really important to spend some time thinking about um, the, the sort of historical setting, the author, the date, the matters of the audience and the themes. It's important for us to recognize that first and foremost, the Bible wasn't written to us in our language. It was written to people who lived in a very different setting a long time ago. And so it's important for us to to think about Mark's unique contributions to our Bible and to think about something of the details of what he was writing. So my introduction will be a little longer this morning. I hope it's not uh, tedious, but I, uh, I do think it's important for us to, con- to think about this. Uh, well, the book is anonymous. Mark's name nowhere occurs in the text of it, but early and consistent church tradition has claimed that the author of this gospel was a man named John Mark, who was a companion of both Peter and Paul at different points in the life of the early church. I've listed some references there uh, in the sermon outline that talk about uh, Mark. He has an interesting story, one who may have been acquainted with Jesus, not, of course, though, one within the group of the Twelve Apostles. In Acts 12, the people were praying, uh, the church were, were praying, were gathered in his mother's home, and that's the home that Peter went to, if you remember the story, when Peter is, is miraculously released from prison. Peter goes to Mark's mother's home and knocks on the door. And, of course, you remember the servant girl says it's Peter but doesn't let him in. It's an interesting story. Um, so Mark's family must have been one of means. They had a servant. They had this sort of gated courtyard uh, area as part of their home. And some have even speculated that Mark's home or Mark's mother's home was actually the home where the Last Supper happened. I was really interested to read this because, and the connection is this, there's a, there's a part in Mark 15 where this figure, when Jesus is being arrested, this figure runs, uh, the, the soldiers grab this young man and he runs away and, his, and he was only wearing a tunic and he runs away naked. It's really there in Mark 15, 51 and 52. Uh, The speculation is that that was actually Mark. I mean, why else would this story have been included in our Gospels? Who else would have known or cared about this detail? And so then the story goes, if this uh, Last Supper happened at Mark's home, uh, the disciples left late at night with Jesus. Mark uh, decided to follow them, but wasn't quite fully dressed or something. He followed them to the garden and ran away when the when Jesus was arrested. Of course, this is all somewhat imaginative, but also somewhat plausible. And, and again, why else would this story have been included in our gospel? 
Um, we knew know that John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey in Acts 13, and then left early to return home. And so when Paul and Barnabas decide to go on their second missionary journey, they disagree sharply about bringing Mark along with them. Colossians 4 tells us that there was a Mark who was a cousin of Barnabas. And so that may have explained Barnabas's insistence on bringing Mark with them or Paul's reluctance that Mark would join them. So in the end, if you remember, the two split. Uh, Paul took Silas and went in one direction. Mark went with Barnabas in another direction to continue their min- uh, ministry and missionary efforts. Uh, so we think there, you know, there, was a, there was a significant conflict there. The good news is, beautifully, at the end of Paul's life, he particularly mentions Mark and commends him as one who is useful to him and important to Paul in his ministry. That's in 2 Timothy 4. And so whatever was their difference of opinion, whatever was their struggle, there was a redemptive outcome in the relationship of Paul and of Mark and of their working together and partnering in the gospel. So we notice in kind of giving this background that Mark has this interesting connection to the story. He's not necessarily one as an eyewitness, but he's one who was deeply connected to the leadership and to the missionary activities of the early church, perhaps even tracing back to uh, him knowing Jesus when he was a young man. Again, our our New Testament references don't connect connect John Mark to this gospel, but very early church tradition does. And so we have a church father that attributes this gospel to John Mark, who calls him the interpreter of Peter saying that Mark had an important role in writing and, and um, uh, doing some of that work for Peter. Uh, and First Peter 5, Peter calls Mark his son, indicating that they had a close relationship. And there's this other interesting feature of Mark's gospel in relation to Peter. There are lots of references to Peter in Mark, including some details that would, might otherwise have been ignored, So you can imagine uh, Peter telling Mark things that he experienced as an eyewitness and then Mark writing them down and them having a sort of flavor of Peter about it. I think we get the sense of that, but also most of these references show Peter in something of a negative light. Mark doesn't speak of Peter being commended. Uh, the, the times that Jesus commends Peter for his faith or different things, those are, we find them in the other Gospels, we don't find them in Mark. And so, if Peter was involved later in his life in the context of, and the content of Mark's gospel, it makes sense that Peter, who's humble and a church leader, would not want uh, anything in the gospel to reflect uh, something that would build him up or give him pride. Um, So, all in all, I think it seems... I think we're on good ground, as the church has for, for millennia, to call this Mark's gospel. There's a good historical connection, and we see internal evidence that connects uh, Mark to Peter and, uh, and to connects this gospel to Peter as well. Um, the book itself, again, as I mentioned, is anonymous, but the point wasn't the author. The point is the narrative, that this account is about Jesus. We get no other clues about the author. We don't really have any clues about the audience. The audience in Mark's gospel is probably a mostly Gentile one based on the fact that when he gets to Jewish customs and ideas, he explains them, which he wouldn't do if he were writing mostly to a Jewish audience. 
Um, not much more really can we know about the audience or who was the original intent of the letter or where it was originally uh, given and, and spread. Mark has long been thought to have been the first gospel written, perhaps even written before the end of Acts, finished in the early to mid-60s A.D., um, some, so within, uh, to be finished within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, scholars have long debated, this is another topic for another day, but this interesting connection of Mark, um, Matthew, and Luke how were they connected? How was their material dependent on each other? Did they, did they know one or the other? Which one was written first? Scholars have long thought that Mark was written first. Uh, over the past century or so, that's been the prevailing theory, and that his material was then verified and also utilized, some of it, by Matthew and by Luke. It's impossible, of course, for us to know for sure, but there are really interesting uh, work that's been done trying to understand how the Gospels as we have them in their present form came together, and, and what sources did they have in common, or, or, and what was the unique contribution of each writer. As we compare the four, we see that Mark has some interesting themes and characteristics. Mark is the shortest by far, and his writing is succinct, and it's fast-paced, and things, if you'll notice, they happen immediately. They happen at once. Often the connecting word between, between paragraphs in Mark's gospel is at once or immediately or and then, you know, right away. There's this sense of, of being fast-paced, the sense of things that, that are happening quickly. We don't get nearly as much in Mark long speeches. For instance, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount takes up three whole chapters. We don't have anything like that in Mark, where there are these sort of long discourses. Much more Mark is showing us action and teaching in, in sort of more succinct uh, kind of nuggets. And there's tension uh, all the way through the narrative. Um, the other Gospels, sort of that tension builds a little bit more, but in Mark we see it from the very beginning. There's tension between Jesus and his disciples. Will they walk this path of discipleship? Do they see who he is? Will they understand what's going on? There's also another kind of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, of course, who are opposed to him, who are jealous of him, who are resenting him and his ministry. And that opposition with the religious leaders begins in chapter 2 of Mark. And so right away, Mark is setting up and showing us this tension that Jesus is in as a central character in this story. The tension he has with his disciples, the tension he has with the religious leaders of his day. This morning we'll look at the prologue of this gospel, the beginning of it, asking God would show us again who the story of the universe really centers around. So I'll read here from Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, we do ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. Help us to see what's true. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to orient our lives anew around the story of this Jesus, your son you sent for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Perhaps a few of you have been following the controversy about the uh, proposed Eisenhower Memorial that was conceived to be built near the National Mall in D.C. As federal government projects go, it seems to be one of the finest. The bill was passed in 1999, approving the idea of the project, so that's 16 years ago, establishing a group to oversee it. Multiple millions have been spent on different designs. Nothing has actually been built or constructed. It continues to be mired in controversy. Uh, As I understand it, in July, this past July, Congress approved the project but chose not to pay its 140, 160, whatever it is, million dollar price tag. And so private donations have been sought and will Congress fund it next year and will this project ever be completed? As Eisenhower is a fellow Kansan of mine, I became a little more interested in this story than usual. It seems that part of the problem from the perspective of the opponents is that the, more, the, the proposed memorial, the design that they have on the table now, doesn't really capture the man. So this is what the opponents would say. The design that the architect came up with does not capture Eisenhower. It's not a good memorial, in that sense, to him. Now, maybe it's just because we're familiar with them, but the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, they seem to capture the essence of their subject. The statues are a fitting tribute, right? They, they give us a sense of, of the gravitas of who this man was and how he was important in his time. And so, again, all the more reason why it's frustrating for those who want to support this memorial that this memorial design doesn't really give us the sense of Ike and doesn't show us the greatness of this general turned president. And so it was making me think, what makes a good representation of a great figure? It may not actually be so simple. If it is mired in controversy, it's not just because it's happening in D.C. and Congress is involved, right? It's because the people who care are fighting over how should this man be memorialized in our nation's capital. If he was an important man, how should he be captured? What's a good statue? How should he be shown? What was significant in his life? How can we capture his greatness? Of course, I submit to you that what we find in the Gospels is a great and perfect account of the most remarkable life. In terms of the depth of spirit-inspired insight 
in terms of the perspective of the ancient world, in terms of the scope, in terms of the language of it, what we have in the Gospels is an amazing picture of Jesus. One better than any statue, better than any other kind of memorial. What we have are words of eyewitnesses captured for us, vividly portrayed, so that we can see him, so that we can know him. And and so over these next few months, as we are studying in Mark's gospel, even if the words are familiar to us, I want us to see again this picture of Jesus. Pastor Stephen, I want to share it with you. We want to explore it together. Mark's message is urgent, and it's good news. It's good news for us. It's good news for every age. And so as we come to it, I I want us to, to have this idea in mind. How is Mark capturing Jesus? How can we be captured by Jesus too? He begins in verse 1 with the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is, what is a gospel? It's a word familiar to us. We, it's used in a couple different ways. First, it's good news. Literally, that's what it means. It's, uh, whether, and, and, it had, and it came in Roman times to have a sort of technical definition. So, a technical term of the, um, the news coming out of Rome about a king or ruler or about a victory or about the birth of an heir to the throne, whatever it was, no matter if it was good news to you or not, if it was coming from the emperor, it was good news. It was, it was a gospel. It was this exact kind of thing. That's one sense in which, within the, con- within the historical context, the word gospel is used. There's a second sense, and that is the one that we're familiar with, perhaps, is the idea that a gospel is the story of Jesus' life. A story, the narrative, the account of his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. The form of which may be first actually captured here in Mark. He's the only writer who calls his work a gospel in that sense, as he does right here. And perhaps the first telling this story in this particular way, if he was the first gospel writer to write. Um, And it's really interesting, we could spend a lot more time comparing this, but in Acts 10, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house... He tells the gospel in the same way that Mark does. He starts with John the Baptist, and he goes through Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. He he tells what became then a standard form. This is the gospel. This is the structure of it, the story of Jesus' life, what he said and what he did. And, of course, that is one way to witness, and we have a very different way of witnessing in Paul and other, uh, his, his letters in the New Testament that tell of propositional truths. In Mark and in the Gospels, we see it in action. And it's one way for us to learn and be discipled. Mark's telling of the Gospel, then, starting there in verse 1, begins actually with the prophet Isaiah. So some 600 years before. Um, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's actually more literal to say, as it is written... And Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John came. And so we get this account of John the Baptist. It's a bit unfortunate that our English translations have a period at the end of verse 1. One, because it's not a complete sentence in English. But two, and more importantly, 
Because the beginning of the gospel really continues through the end of verse 13. When Jesus then begins the rest of the gospel. So John is setting up a prologue here and he's saying, this is the beginning of the gospel as it is written in the prophet. This had to happen first. And then Jesus appears on the scene in verse 14 and begins the rest then of the story of the gospel. Isaiah's prophecy, John the Baptist, are the preparation of this story about Jesus, the prologue of it, the beginning of it. And Isaiah, Malachi, and others predicted this important messenger would come to precede the Messiah who arrives on the scene here in John. John's a critical character in the gospel story. We know a lot about him, actually, from the gospels. We know about his parents and his miraculous birth story. We know about his public ministry. We know about his imprisonment. We know about his death. Uh, I preached a sermon about John a couple years ago from Matthew 3, so I'm not going to go into as much detail today. You can find it on the website. We have uh, sermons going all the way back to the beginning of 2010. Hours of listening pleasure are right (laughs) at your fingertips, all the way back to January of 2010 on the website. Uh, But John's rule was a preparatory one. He was calling people to repent of their sins, to ask God for forgiveness. And he was pointing to the Messiah who was coming. And so John was like an Old Testament prophet. That's the way he functioned. His job was to plow up the ground. His job was to prepare the soil of the nation to receive the seed of the word of God coming through Jesus. We see then as we get to verse 9 that Jesus is baptized. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's really interesting, actually, if you think about it. Why was John baptizing people? This wasn't an Old Testament ritual. It isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, this idea of baptism the way John is doing it. And at this point... It lacks the explicit significance that baptism will get in the New Testament as the disciples teach about it, as Jesus teaches about it. So at one level, it's kind of a mystery here. Why, was John pick, why did John pick up this ritual? What was the theological import of it since it isn't actually in the Old Testament? What was the exact meaning for him and for his audience? And I think there's, there's scholarly debate about this. What was the What was the culture's view of baptism at that time? Um, As scholars tend to do, there's a lot of words that are written. The explanation is probably pretty simple. Water removes dirt, right? Water is a universal symbol of cleansing and purifying in many religions. And throughout the Old Testament, water was used to purify the priests, to purify their instruments, to purify different portions of the sacraments, uh, the sacrifices, So uh, there was a a use of this idea of baptism in the Qumran communities and related communities of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, around this time. So they they had baptism and they had other kinds of ritual washings to symbolize the washing of the flesh and the cleansing of the soul. So John is picking up this symbolic act of the religious culture and he's giving it a different meaning through his preaching. He's connecting this action with worship of the God of Israel in a way that hadn't actually been connected before. When Jesus arrives on the scene, 
of course, he wants to be baptized. And in Matthew's account, it gives us this sort of reluctance of John to perform this sign on Jesus and how uncomfortable he is baptizing him. But Jesus insists that this needs to be done to fulfill all righteousness, which means that Jesus knows that he needs to be baptized in order to fulfill the Father's will. But again, we have to kind of ask the question, since he was sinless, why would Jesus submit to a baptism of repentance? I think there are a couple senses in which we can answer that. One is, Jesus is, is in a way submitting to John. John is calling the nation to repent. Jesus is part of the nation. And so he, admits, he submits to John's call to validate John's ministry and, and lift him up as a true prophet. Related to this is the way that Jesus is identify him, identifying himself with the people of God. Right? John is calling the covenant people of God to return to the covenant from their heart. Jesus is identifying himself with those covenant people who are returning to God, though, of course, Jesus never turned away from God. He's not identifying himself with their sin. He's identifying himself with this community, which is in desperate need of God's forgiveness and God's mercy and God's presence. So in one sense, Jesus is authenticating or validating John's ministry. In the other sense, here in this passage, we get the, the authentication of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. A voice from heaven, the Father declares, You are my Son. Can you imagine being there? You are my Son whom I love. A voice from heaven with whom I am well pleased. This is a Trinitarian moment, isn't it? It's an important one. In the same way that the Spirit is the power source for the Christian follower, the Christ follower, so also the Spirit is mentioned again and again as the power source of Jesus in his earthly ministry as the Spirit empowers him, and the Spirit encourages Jesus to the work that the Father has called him to do all throughout the Gospel accounts, including uh, here being baptized. The heavens were dramatically torn open in this moment. Something miraculous and important was happening. Jesus identifying himself with his people. It's the incarnation moving forward. Jesus doesn't just identify himself with humanity. He identifies himself with a covenant community who is in need of mercy and repentance. Next, in Mark's fast-moving narrative, the Spirit at once or immediately leads Jesus out into the desert and the wilderness in order to be tempted. Uh, Verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Again, there's this explicit connection with Jesus being led by the Spirit, obedient to the Spirit, and this is the final stage of Jesus' preparation for his ministry, this dramatic encounter of Satan in the wilderness. Again, Mark gives us two verses. The other gospel writers give us more. But the point is this. If the Messiah is to remain faithful to his Father's will, he has to remain faithful in the midst of opposition and temptation and trial. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus was tempted in, as, in every way, as we are, but yet was, did not sin. Matthew and Luke give us details about it, that, that, that there was a supernatural fast, that Jesus didn't eat anything for those 40 days. The devil tempted him, according to Matthew, with fame and power and with bread and, and even misuses scripture, of course, but Jesus responds with the right use of scripture. And clearly we see that the point is Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. 
Jesus is the second Adam. He's the new man. He won't fall into misery and sin. The second Adam will reverse the curse. The second Adam will bring healing to every kind of brokenness. The same way that the actions in the reverse of the way that the actions of the first Adam brought us into the state of sin and rebellion against God. Jesus is more powerful than the devil. And we'll see that as a theme throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus has power over nature. He has power over his human nature to resist temptation and withstand and not eat for so long. And this strange thing that Mark mentions here about the animal, the wild animals are around. Something about Jesus' relationship with their creation, even, seems not as broken as ours. It's interesting. This is the preparation. And these are the themes that will drive Mark's account, and we'll see them again and again. Jesus is led by the Spirit. Jesus is strong. Jesus will baptize in the Spirit. Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. Jesus is the promised one who has now arrived. The prologue then leads us to the real thing, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel, the good news, is being announced. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world in a new and different way. It's not the kingdom of Israel. It's not a return to David and Solomon. It's the kingdom of God. And it's important to you, Mark is saying, what seemed, and Jesus is saying, what seemed far off is now close. What seemed distant is right upon you. You can't be neutral on this news. It's good news to you or it isn't. You have a choice to make about how you will respond. The beginning of Jesus' message, as Mark records it, is simple. Repent and believe the good news. And that, of course, takes us right to our application. We have to start right here. Is this good news to you? Have you repented? There are lots of things that we can and should repent over, as we do each week in our worship service, particular sins like pride and gossip and lying and lust and selfishness and doubt. But Jesus is calling people, I think, to the deepest and most comprehensive kind of repentance. To repent means to turn around, means to go the other direction, do a 180. By default, we're oriented towards ourselves and away from God. Our culture teaches us all the time to substitute things in place of God. We want life lived on our terms. We don't want to be accountable to a deity who can record our every thought, word, and deed. How embarrassing is that? Jesus says that there's a God who calls us to see that we are all desperately broken and in need of him. And that real life can't be lived apart from God. And without restoring one's relationship with God that's broken. Because without restoring that relationship with God that's broken, life is lived in misery and fear. Repent, Jesus says. It's first a word here. And then believe. Do you believe in this Messiah? who can alone fix our broken world and our broken lives. This is just a story unless it's a story that changes you, right? Unless we respond to him. As we'll read, we'll see that Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers. He wants disciples. And so this morning we ask, is that you really? To believe is to have faith, to trust that behind and beyond what we see, 
there's a real world. There's the real kingdom of God. There's a real God who's doing everything. As I've been considering embarking on this series, I want to be moved again by this figure who appears and changes everything. I want to be shocked. I want to be surprised by what he said and by what he did and what that means for me today. What that means for us. And maybe some of you are a bit like me. You've heard and read the gospel many times. My hope and my prayer is that we'll be startled by it again. That we would pray that together. That we would be arrested by this story and, and, and stopped in our tracks by the amazing things that are happening at the hands of this and the lips of this amazing man. Perhaps some of you have never read much of Mark's gospel before. It will be a journey for you, too, as we encounter the Messiah. He'll call you to follow him. He'll call you to put aside your other priorities and to seek him first. He'll challenge you because of your sin and your selfishness and your pride. And he'll be your healer. And he'll bring you to an abundant life in a relationship with him. No memorial can capture this man, and of course we shouldn't try. We shouldn't try to build statues and monuments. What we have is greater. What we have are eyewitnesses. What we have are historical actions told to us about this man who changes everything in world history, and the one who changes our histories with his redemptive power. So hear that message this morning. It's that simple. Repent, believe, Jesus has come, the kingdom is near, history is different. It's the message that our hearts need, isn't it? Be renewed in you, in your encounter with him today, as we look closely at his story. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do ask that we would find, again, uh, our hearts encountering you. In, in the story that you have preserved for us, in this true, true story of a Messiah who's come for his people. God, we pray that you would uh, bless your church through this message. Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us as you spoke and as you taught those many years ago through, through your spirit. Would you speak to us? Uh, even today, help us to repent, help us to believe, Shore up where our repentance is weak and our faith is weak. Build us up. Change our course where we're going the right, wrong direction. God, we need your help. And we thank you that the Messiah has come. And we pray in his name. Amen.